Remember this, we must not forget that our saving faith is precious and valuable. We must be diligent to determine and know sound doctrine. We must preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember this, fake doctrine promises a refreshing reign of hope, but it brings dryness. Fake doctrine promises spiritual life, but it only brings death. Fake doctrine promises spiritual fruit, but only delivers emptiness. Remember this, the world has subtle and clever ways to try to confuse and discourage you. So keep yourself ready in God's love and pray for the Holy Spirit to build you up. Have mercy and compassion on those polluted by sin. Remember this, be ready to discern truth from almost truth. Be ready for Christ's return. Be ready to contend for the faith. Morning. The most grievous threat, greatest danger to the church, down her 2,000 year history, has been the false gospel. The infiltration and substitution of an almost gospel, a pseudo gospel, a wolf in sheep's clothing gospel into the church. External persecution has certainly played a part in the history of the church down her years. And certainly there has been much grievous pain and grievous loss caused by the, the, the church being caught up in this, in this war the world has declared on its creator. But from every season of external persecution and oppression, the true church has always emerged stronger than ever before. External persecution, as horrific as those chapters can be, has always tended to strengthen the church. The real enemy has been internal corruption and the centerpiece of that internal corruption has been a false gospel. It's, it's uh, so pervasive that essentially every single New Testament book addresses the issue in one way or another. This, this warning and this need to be alert to a false gospel. It is a, it is a primary task of the elder body of each local church. Churches, churches are supposed to have elders and the elders of the church. One of the classic passages on the duty of the elders is Paul's address to the elders of the church at Ephesus found in Acts 20. And in that address, the heart of the matter is a charge and warning that those elders are to stand guard for that church lest Wolves in sheep's clothing come in to teach doctrine that is not true, to teach non-truth and the distorted and perverted gospel. And should the elders fail in their charge, body of Christ, it falls to you. Galatians chapter one assigns to the congregation the duty that should anybody come into a, a position of, of, of teaching visibility. 
in the life of the church. Regardless, Paul says, if, even if I come back to you, let alone any other teacher, and teach something that is not the transforming gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of the work of Christ alone, rise up, body of Christ, and cry out, accursed, accursed. <coughs> Don't sit for it. Don't stand for it. We are charged repeatedly in the New Testament to, to stand as ambassadors of Christ, speaking out his truth, but also as guardians against error, opposing that which purports to be of God, but is not the biblical gospel. And this book, Jude, contains in some of the strongest language of all that warning. In fact, it's, it's the theme, as we will see, of the book of Jude. So let's, uh, let's begin our study this morning. Jude is second to the last book in your New Testament. It's, it's tucked in right before the book of, of Revelation. And, uh, well... Verses one through four. Don't have to do a chapter number. There aren't any chapters. It's just one chapter. In fact, and once you've found it in your Bible, if you have a printed Bible like mine, if your Bible has print of a size that my eyes at least could help hope to read it, it probably is about a page and a half. If you've got a printed Bible that fits all of Jude on one page, you must still have young eyes. Verses one through four. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Roman numeral one on your outline as we begin now this, this walk through the book of Jude. Roman numeral one, the author. Let's, let's look for a moment at, at who this guy is, this human being, Jude, who's being used of God to deliver this, this, little, this little epistle, this letter to us. Um, Mark chapter 6, Matthew chapter 13, in each of those chapters, we have a list of the names of the half-brothers of Jesus. They are, they are the sons of Mary and Joseph. The oldest of them is James. We know a little bit about him. This is not the apostle James, the brother of John, 
Uh, he is the first of the apostles to be martyred and, and is not the author of the book of James. In fact, he's the only one of the apostles whose martyrdom has its story told in the Bible. He's, he's beheaded by Herod in Acts chapter 12. It's not that James that is the brother of, of Jude. This Jude is the youngest of the four named brothers, half-brothers of Jesus. I say, why do I say half-brothers? Yeah, same mama, way different daddy. <laughs> there are those that have taught a doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. That doctrine denies the word of God because the word of God tells us the names of the other children of Mary and Joseph. She had one virgin-born son for sure, but then she and Joseph went on and had a marriage, had other kids. It's, a, it's, it's crazy to embrace a doctrine of perpetual virginity as though virginity in a married person makes you more holy. Virginity in a married person makes your marriage chaos, is what it made. Mary and Joseph loved one another and lived as a married couple and had other kids. They are named in Scripture, the oldest of their other sons, James, author of the book of James. We'll say more about that in a moment. Then there are two more boys named Simon and Joe Jr. Well, the lists say Joseph, but I got to figure they called him either Joe Jr. or Joey. And then Judas, whose friends called him Jude. Now he introduces himself in this book, letter A on your outline, as a servant of Jesus Christ. You know, he could have said a brother of Jesus Christ, a half-brother anyway of Jesus Christ. I have two brothers, uh, my older brother Van, my younger brother Ted, and in settings where Van and Ted are known, I have no issues at all with introducing myself as, hi, I'm Russell, I'm, I'm Van's little brother, or hi, I'm Ted, I'm Russell, I'm Ted's big brother. In settings where my brothers are known, I would often introduce myself by citing my connection to my brothers. Yes, that does further inform you that I am a hopelessly dysfunctional middle child, right? So... Van older, Ted younger, me in the middle. Jude is certainly writing to people who are familiar with Jesus. And so he would have been perfectly natural to say, hi, I'm, uh, I'm Jude, the, uh, the brother of Jesus. But he said the servant of Jesus. By introducing himself in that way, what character quality is, uh, is Jude demonstrating? Humility, somebody said. That's right. Let me give you a short working definition of humility. This is not in your notes, but you can put it there if you want. This is not an academic definition, just a working definition. Humility is the heartfelt belief that you matter more than I do. The heartfelt belief that you matter more than I do. Humility never makes itself a big deal. Humility looks to make others a big deal. And Jude is certainly here demonstrating humility. By the way, in terms of service in the kingdom, in terms of, of being used of God, your spiritual giftedness and your growth as a believer will result in some sort of ability. There's something about your life that God can use. And where ability and humility meet, and availability is served up, the Lord will use that. 
Ability without humility, you're just gonna be interested in self-promotion. You're just gonna be interested in making yourself a bigger deal and that's not terribly useful for the kingdom. Humility without ability is just kind of weird. It might be admirable character, but it's not good for anything. For example, I am an extraordinarily humble wide receiver for two reasons that I can think of. First, I cannot catch anything thrown at me. I usually dodge when that happens rather than end up hitting the face by something. I don't have super great depth perception and my hands are a little bit slow generally doing what my brain tells them to do. And I can't outrun a concrete block. So, I am extraordinarily humble as wide receivers go and nobody cares. I don't have any ability. Humility and ability, then Holy Spirit submitted availability is how we find the place where we can be useful to God. Jude was humble, a servant of Jesus Christ. And the brother, the brother of James. If you were a first century believer, you probably would have heard of James, the oldest half-brother of Jesus and the first non-apostle to be the lead pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Once the uh, apostles left behind the church at Jerusalem and began fulfilling their missionary calling, spreading all over the known world, they left the church at Jerusalem in the hands of an elder body, as New Testament churches are to have. And among the elders of the church at Jerusalem, this, this oldest half-brother of Jesus, James, becomes the uh, the first lead pastor of the church at Jerusalem to not be an apostle. He wrote, by the way, the book of James. And just as a a little point of, of Bible trivia for you, the oldest epistle in your New Testament, the first one written, dating from probably before AD 50, is probably the book of James. The last New Testament epistle, that is letter written in your New Testament, is the book of Jude, written probably just before A.D. 70. Certainly after 2 Peter, because Jude quotes 2 Peter with some familiarity, as though you will know what he's talking about in the language that he uses. So the first epistle and last epistle in your New Testament are written by half-brothers of Jesus. We don't know much else about Jude. But that's our author. Written from an, we don't know from where, in the late AD 60s. Roman numeral two, the recipients. Who's he writing to? Well, he's writing to believers in a very general way. He describes them with three terms. Those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. The Roman two on your outline, the recipients. Letter A, called. Those who are called. He's just affirming the truth oft stated elsewhere. That if you're a believer... Your salvation was not at first your idea. Your salvation has its ultimate roots in the God who saves. Salvation is of the Lord. Your salvation was primarily his initiative. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life. If you're born again, 
Yes, you responded in repentance and faith, but that to which you responded was his call, his initiative, his love for you. Called, beloved in God. That word beloved there is is rooted in our, our old favorite agape, that highest form of love found not commonly in first century language until the New Testament because it is such an unusual thing. To be the object of an unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to your well-being and that commitment to reside in the heart of the maker of heaven and earth and everything in them. What an astonishing thing to be beloved by God and then kept for Jesus Christ. This is one more time. I say this a lot, that if there were no other verse to establish the truth of eternal security for the believer, that those who are authentically born again are forever born again, this is one more time in this little turn of phrase, this little affirmation, we are kept for Jesus Christ. You're not remaining saved today on the basis of your grip on God. You are remaining saved today if you are authentically saved by his grip on you. To say otherwise is to deny an important characteristic of the gospel of grace. To believe that you are not eternally secure must be to believe that you are somehow staying saved because you keep getting it right. You are saved in part by your own good behavior if you reject the doctrine of eternal security. And every night when you put your head on your pillow, it must be that you're proud of yourself because you've held it together one more day or you are in terrible fear because perhaps today you failed to hold it together. You can never simply Rest your head on your pillow, confident in a God who keeps his word and who holds his people. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. If salvation is utterly by grace, then salvation is not maintained by effort. Kept. These are Christians. These are those to whom Jude writes this marvelous little letter. Roman numeral three, the blessing. Verse two, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. It's it's a fairly typical epistle beginning. Mercy, peace, and love. Oh, mercy, mercy. We need it. In Christ, we have it. Why do we need it? Well, let me do a a little... theology of man, a little biblical anthropology with you for a moment. You and I are born citizens in a world at war with God, and our inherited legacy is that sinfulness. Our inherited position, our natural setting is opposition to God and all things concerning him. That comes with the territory to be born a descendant of Adam and Eve. Therefore, There's only one word that can ultimately complete this fill-in-the-blank sentence. I'll leave you the blank verbally. You fill it in. Here we go. I deserve hell. Hell. 
hell. Now, I, I know some of y'all are thinking, yes, Russell, we're quite familiar with the fact that you deserve hell. No problem agreeing with that. This time, say it again in the first person and understand it to be true, lest you undervalue what Christ has done for you. Shall we say it again? I deserve hell, because you do. You just do. And to the degree that causes you to bow up, to the degree you would oppose that truth, take care lest you find yourself on the wrong side of the book of Jude. We need mercy. Today, a room full of us who deserve hell, here we sit and we're not there. That's mercy. Even if you are not yet born again, even if you are outside of Christ today, so far today you have breathed his air. So far today you have enjoyed his sunlight. So far today perhaps you maybe have had breakfast and had a meal you don't deserve or you anticipate this afternoon some food you don't deserve for you deserve hell and yet you're not there. Yet every day he multiplies to you mercy and for the child of God, the mercy he has in store for us. Oh, how phenomenal. Mercy, peace. Peace in this, uh, this, this three-week period I've had, as many of you have had, I've had conversations with person after person. Everyone who is in this region, in this season, is gonna have a Hurricane Ian story. Some more difficult and dramatic than others. Some terrible, terrible Harsh realities have come in this season. I've spent a lot of time in these last days talking to folks and listening to folks. But astonishingly, you know, Christians interface with reality. Jesus doesn't call us to a, to a Pollyanna ridiculousness, but the reality we most embrace is ultimate reality. And I've talked to people who've said, well, yeah, we pretty well lost the house. The cars, of course, long gone, and, and the business too. But you know what? It's all right. All right? What are you, delusional? No. Just at peace. Christians, we have access to a peace that is grounded in a reality beyond anything this world can ever throw at us. And, and, and wow, oh wow, are we reminded that that's not, that's not a rhetorical exercise. That's not a metaphor. That's not a hyperbolic overstatement. It's reality. Because I've talked to people, and probably you have too, maybe you're one of them, that have lost pretty much the whole inventory and are nonetheless at peace. And if you're struggling, you're entitled to that struggle. It's a lot, and grief is real. Even grief over lost stuff can be real. But there is access to peace. Mercy, peace, and multiplied love. That capacity to unconditionally, self-sacrificially commit our lives to the well-being of others. That love that we have because Jesus has loved us first. He wishes to bless his readers with those things. And then Roman 4, the necessity. Why this book? Why this letter that has come down to us 
as part of our New Testament. Well, letter A, a frustrated hope. A frustrated hope. Beloved, verse three, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, when I sat down and took my, my stylus or my quill in hand, I intended to write to you about the things that we have in common as believers. The implication is the things that we can celebrate. Oh, the, the, the joy of knowing that the death of Christ has accomplished the payment for our sin. Oh, the, the praise of knowing the one who created us and in relationship with him in this life, anticipating the glories of the next. Oh, the freedom that comes from knowing that our sin is forgiven and we stand restored before God. Oh, so much to celebrate and so much we could write about our common salvation. <laughs> One has the impression he meant to write something a bit more upbeat. That hope was frustrated by letter B, an urgent necessity. An urgent necessity. While that's what I was eager to write about after the comma, I found it necessary to write. Compelling. Urgent. Inevitable. Necessary to write appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That, by the way, that statement is the structural foundation and spine of the book of Jude. That's why God the Holy Spirit has given us the book of Jude. That encouragement right there is the binding structure of all that follows in the book. I want to break it down for you. This is not in your notes, but just look at the componentry of that statement for a moment. First, I want you to, to contend. To contend. That word contend stands for a, a, a compound, epiagonizamai. Epi epi Russell, don't try to do Greek on low blood sugar. To, to agonize and then some. The, the verb agonizomai is a fairly common verb. It means to, to oppose, to agonize over something as the word descends to English. Here, the prefix epi, to go beyond agonizing, is added to the word. It is the only occurrence of the more uh, strengthened form. It's the only occurrence in the whole New Testament. In fact, it's the only occurrence we find in any Greek literature from the first century period. It is unique to this, to contend. Earlier translations say to earnestly contend, to be ready to passionately oppose that which comes against the authentic gospel. To want gospel truth preserved more than Tennessee wanted that field goal yesterday. And to be ready to storm the field in either opposition or support of the authentic gospel, listen to me carefully, with more passion than you bring to any other subject in your life. And yes, I know exactly what I just said. Nowhere else are we told 
to go beyond agonizing over something. Agonize over any number of things. Go beyond agonizing when you contend for the faith. The faith, not faith. Not some general, ill-formed, I just, I just think it's important that people have something beyond themselves to believe in. You know, it doesn't really matter what, just that you believe in something. That statement comes from the pit and smells like sulfur. That's a hellish, brimstony statement because if you don't hold to the faith, you'll die and go to hell forever. And if you would, would just promote some general idea of faith, you are an ambassador of hell. The faith. What faith? The faith once for all delivered. The word of God tells us everything we need to know from God to us. That's why we hold to the, the doctrine of sola scriptura, the Bible alone, because this faith is once for all delivered. We're not looking for God to say something else. If it's new, it ain't true. Oh, I just need a new word from God. I just need a new word from God. You're telling me you've got all the old word from God so figured out that you're ready to move on to something else. He's not. The faith is once for all delivered to the saints. And that is what we're supposed to passionately contend for, to fight tooth and nail for. Why? Let her see the somber warning. Because the wolves have dressed up like sheep following the example of their master, Satan, who dons the attire of an angel of light. Oh, how true, oh, how positive, oh, how reasonable he can appear. And his wolves disguise themselves as sheep. First, their deceitfulness, they have crept in unnoticed. They've crept in unnoticed. Popular? Winsome, adept at communicating. This church is to be warned. If your life group teacher, whom you love, stands up on a Sunday morning and says, you know, I've got neighbors that don't embrace Christianity, and I just don't understand that God would ever condemn. I just don't think God would send them to hell. They're such nice people, and they believe what they believe so passionately. The sound of your class's heads exploding should echo all over this campus. You should, you should alert the elder body, and we should sweep in and deal with that matter. And if it's one of us, an elder, if it's me, 
and the promotion is that of something other than the biblical gospel, you, are, you have already pledged in our church covenant, if you're a member of this church, to stop that voice, to silence that error, to contend for the faith. In this church, that charge ultimately is laid to the congregation. In the larger voices of the kingdom, oh, how many happy, positive voices are out there speaking sometimes to large crowds and purporting to speak for God. But it ain't the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's either a gospel that can be seized upon by some sort of effort on your part, or it's a gospel that does not result necessarily in transformation, just affirmation, happy thoughts. Don't buy their books. Don't watch their videos. Contend against that error and the people who promote it earnestly, passionately, deliberately. You are an ambassador for the gospel of Christ, believing friend. And your tolerance for error regarding the gospel should be zero with a bullet. They creep in unnoticed. That's their deceit. Letter uh, number two, their designation. They are, they are designated for wrath, these unbelieving false teachers. In fact, God has seen it coming and they were long ago designated for this condemnation. That's just a reminder that God is not outmaneuvered by errors, that the gospel will triumph and that God's providence contemplates even Grievous error and great deceit, their designation. Number three, their danger. Their danger. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. That is, in this specific case, they, they promote a gospel that doesn't transform you. It's just, you know, Lord will forgive you. And he will. But then you are encouraged to to cognitively, mentally embrace some version of understanding that while at the same time going forward with a life utterly untransformed where your sin is not even affected. Your life is not changed. You go forward in the embrace of the same sinful characteristics that marked you before you supposedly met Jesus. But your life is unchanged. If your life is unchanged, you're not saved. Well, now God and I have got an understanding about my sin. We just got us an understanding. Let me tell you what he understands. He doesn't know you and you're going to go to hell forever. That's the understanding you have. If what you have that you call Christianity has left you unchanged, what you have is not Christianity. He does not require works of righteousness in order to save you. Salvation is by faith not works, but salvation is a faith that works and that faith transforms you. When you follow Jesus, you follow Jesus. And if you aren't, then you aren't. These false teachers would have you patted on the hand and loaded up with Bible trivia, but never confronted with the reality that salvation makes of you a new creature 
And that creature will reflect the will of its creator. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? That's their danger. And finally, letter D, their, their denial, or number four, their denial. They have a script, but not a savior. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They may say the right words. They got the words, but not the walk. They got the script, but not the savior. They have the appearance, but not the reality. Be leery of them. You're outside of Christ this morning. The faith once for all delivered to the saints calls you to the cross where Jesus Christ paid by his blood the price and penalty of, of uh, your sin. And he extends from that cross the reality of which was proven by the empty tomb. He extends from that cross an invitation that all who will turn from their sin and trust him by faith can have eternal life. You cannot contend for a faith you have not embraced. Come to Jesus. And if you're a believer, it's not that you're supposed to go about having a contentious demeanor. You can be a perfectly polite, loving, friendly person, but don't you give them a centimeter when they start trying to reframe the gospel of Jesus Christ as something that it is not. Distort the gospel of Jesus Christ into something that's just not true. You are an ambassador for Christ to speak the truth and to oppose error. Before I pray, a couple of resources, and I don't usually, I don't usually, uh, do much bibliography, but I wanted to make these sources available to you. Um, the, the, the first, B.H. Uh, Carroll is a voice from a different era. I'll give you that. B.H. Carroll was the founding president of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, now the largest seminary in the world. Dr. Carroll's Bible uh, class was, was compiled and published in, in, when you buy it bound, I think it's a six-volume work, An Interpretation of the English Bible by B.H. Carroll. I think the individual pieces are available digitally. And if, you, if you'd like to do a bit of a deeper dive into study of the book of Jude, Carroll's work on Jude in that collection is absolutely priceless. It is a phenomenally good work. Plus, as a bonus, if you look up B.H. Carroll online, I think you will find the most magnificent Baptist beard in history. Carol knew how to grow a beard. Now, at the very least, you're going to look him up and see his picture because you're curious what I mean by his oh-so-magnificent beard, Carol. As I was reading Carol on, on Jude, Carol made reference to a book by Thomas Eaton called Faith and the Faith. Well, Carol seemed to love it. So I thought, I wonder if that's still in print because Carol is a few years ago. Well, I found it on Amazon. You can get it digitally for almost nothing. I, being an old guy, I got a hard hardbound volume of it. The copyright date is 1906, but it is good. Eaton, Faith and the Faith. As a, you know, if you want to kind of go to the head of the class as an advanced bookworm on the book of Jude, those two resources are as fine as any that you'll find as old as they are. Let's contend for the faith. 
Let's give more energy to the promotion and defense of the gospel than we give to anything else in this life. This life which requires a great deal of energy be given to a great many things, requires the best and most of us as we contend for the faith.